0: Welcome back for another ATP podcast, I'm Seb Lozier and one week on from the Australian Open we are with a former champion there and a real favourite down under, doubles star John Piers. If you're struggling to find the right tension on your racket we have a stringing masterclass from two of the very best in the business. But before all that, having reached a first tour final this week in Pune, India where he was eventually beaten by veteran Joao Souza, Finn Emil Roussevoiri has been talking about his steady progress of late with Jill Krabus
1: just uh, learning all the things that you need to know better on this level and against the top top guys and uh, I think slowly we've been we've been working a lot and uh, well with the team and uh, now I've been also healthy so that helps but I mean it's just playing the matches getting the experience the confidence that you can beat these guys and uh, yeah I mean it's just a lot of it just a playing at this level and uh, learn.
2: So I know your coach was telling me that you've dealt with some injuries mm-hmm. um have had to overcome quite a bit. How difficult was you was that for you to overcome those challenges to finally get to a place where you are healthy?
1: Yeah, I mean when I was younger like 14, 15 uh, it would, those were tough years. I had uh, three times a stress fracture line on my back uh, so those were I spent a lot of time on one of the spinning bikes and like three, four months at a time and uh I mean, it was challenging, but in the end, like now, if you look back, it kind of taught me to do things better. And uh, I mean, there's no shortcuts to get here. So, um, I mean, just work, <laughs> do everything you can as well as you can. So, I mean, also just the basics. I mean, the warm-ups and cooldowns and this kind of stuff, it just, they just, uh, well, there was no, no other option than just do it. Like all the rehabs and stuff, yeah, I just had to do so well and uh, a lot that my body would handle it. And uh, now well, the body starts to be better and stronger, but I mean, it's uh, I was quite, uh, I developed, let's say, quite old. Like, let's say 16, 17, I was still very, uh, yeah, I grew up, like, I was quite tall, but like the body was not there. So uh, we had to do a lot of work to make it make it ready for this kind of challenges.
2: And you talked about confidence being so important being one of the differences how do you feel like you will be able to get to a more confident state in your mind to
1: me that's just by playing I mean you just need the matches you need them well, the wins for the confidence they're the key I mean it doesn't matter at least for me if you while well you play but if you if you don't win it's uh, it's tough for the confidence um, but yeah it's just that's that's the way for me it's just and that's why we've been trying play as much as possible almost every week and uh, yeah I mean that's that's the only way
2: and I know um, you know growing up in Finland you still live in Finland Mm -hmm. do you do most of your off season training there or because I feel like that would be tough environment Mm -hmm. just as you know the winters can be a little bit brutal do you tend to train there or you go other places to train
1: Um, the last two years we've been doing the well the first two week, two one or two weeks we do mostly fitness so that you can do in Finland and last year my fitness coach also they, they just came to Finland and we did a week there but then we went uh, yeah it was actually two two years in a row we went to Mallorca now to Rafas Academy um, the first time we're there like two weeks and last year ten days uh, it's just yeah the weather and you can play outside and uh, practice partners I mean it's It's key. I mean, you have to uh, get used to the level that they play, and uh, it's yeah. If you can then practice with them, it makes things easier. So it's it's not easy in Finland, but yeah, uh, it's uh, at some point it's gonna be a head that might have to move somewhere else.
2: (laughs) I know you trained with Nadal a little bit as well. What was that experience? And when you said you know you learned about that level more, what Mm -hmm. what exactly about that level did you learn?
1: Well, that's. uh, you go straight to the top uh, yeah, I had the chance to practice with him a couple of times and it's uh, I will say totally different experience than any- with anybody else it's uh, just the pace and uh, intensity is just uh, it's crazy I mean from the first p- point on it uh, doesn't matter what we do but it's, uh, it's just so high uh, so I- I've never experienced something like that practice with Novak and it's uh, much easier the ball is much cleaner and it's uh,
2: it's but just yeah, easier it's a, as far as the hitting. Yeah, okay. just the hitting.
1: Uh, I mean, yeah, it's What about both. the intensity? I mean, it's just different. I mean, they both have it, but it's just the uh, Rafa's it's uh, how hard it is and it's it's just somehow hits different.
2: Okay. And uh, so uh, can can you tell us a little bit how how different it is with Novak for example? Obviously, you know, you said Nadal with the ball and mm-hmm. but with Novak, how is it different from him? Well,
1: it's just um, let's say if you just did from the middle hits, I mean, it's very Still very fast, very heavy, very deep, uh, but it's just more clean the ball that comes so with Rafa. It's a lot of spin, or then fully flat, and it's uh, uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's just it's different. We're two very different types of mm. players, but uh, it's fun, like, there too. You get to experience both, and uh, then there's still many, many other players, and they pretty much everybody has their little bit on style, but it's uh, I mean, it's those experiences you need it's very nice to get them and then maybe one day if you need, get to play them then you know a little bit what to expect that it's not as big of a surprise
2: so from, from those experiences do you feel like it's changed the way you train
1: yeah for sure you can get something some, some things out from those uh, It's uh, and put in I mean there you see every point the intensity that they play then you will need to also bring it out yourself it doesn't matter where you are practicing with anybody it doesn't matter of course when you're practicing with this guy let's say top 20 they, they bring it out but then I'm in Finland I have to practice with somebody I don't know a local or something you have to bring it out yourself and uh, I think that's one of the uh, tougher things and that's one of the things that they do so well that it doesn't matter where and when but they always bring out the, that same intensity
2: and I know and for, for a lot of these players like they, I mean everyone can play well the difference mm-hmm. a lot of times is that mentality is there anything yeah. you do off the court or on the court that you feel like has been able to refine your mentality or get you more mentally tough in those big moments?
1: I mean, yeah, I've been, I've got through many tough matches, but I think that's one of the things that, for me, I still need to improve, is that it doesn't, like, every week you have to do it a year is long, and it doesn't matter the conditions and everything, but that's, I will say, one of the improvements that I still have to make. I'd be better, I mean, I've been, we've been working on it and it's gotten much better but still I think I feel like it's uh, one of those things that you, I can improve.
0: Emile Roussevori with Jill Krabus and remember you can get all the latest results from Cordoba, Montpellier and Pune this week and the draws and orders of play from the upcoming events in Rotterdam, Dallas and Buenos Aires at atptour.com and also by downloading the ATP Tour app. So the tour is already moving on at pace. And among other things, that means hundreds more rackets being strung every day. Shortly, we'll hear from two of the best in the business at doing exactly that. But first, Candy Reid also managed to sit down in Melbourne at that first Grand Slam of the year with a doubles quarter finalist who is no stranger to the latter stages of a Grand Slam. Aussie home favourite John Peers won the title in Melbourne in 2017 with partner Henry Continen. And that is exactly where their conversation started.
3: Any time you have success of that magnitude, you really enjoy it and always brings great memories back when you come back here. I mean, I've been coming to the Australian Open since I was a little child, and it's always been one of my great dreams to be able to win it here. So to be able to do it and sort of on home soil in front of friends and family is always really special.
4: There's been two Australian, well, you you won one. and you've been to the final 2019 both with continent yeah and then you also had a really good run 2015 got to two finals us open and wimbledon with jamie murray correct so how do you choose your partners
3: try and look for uh longevity in my partnerships i mean i had i've had three really long partnerships and then last year was a little bit of mixing and matching Mm -hmm. but um no i mean it's like anything you try and find someone that matches up well both on court and off court because I mean whether you like it or not you spend so much time together yeah. it's a long year and you've got to enjoy each other's company both on court and off court so I mean it's tough to find the right balance and I think that's where the doubles game's so unique and you don't normally see a few or that side of it as much as what you do on the singles side I mean the singles guys go on about their business and it's only up to one person I mean doubles court there's so many more factors that get thrown into play and no I mean that's a fun thing about doubles so
4: would you prefer to play with someone unbelievably good but perhaps you don't have that chemistry off the court but it's amazing on the court or would you prefer to have a little bit of a less good partner and have a really good relationship both on and off the court
3: no you got to definitely go on court first you get the the job done get business done and and i think that's part of the balance and sometimes part of the art it doubles you got to sometimes separate both personal and business and when you find that right mix, it's great and things click and keep rolling. But whether you like it or not, you've got to find and go through the waves of sometimes not some great events, which can happen to anyone. And you've got to learn to find ways to get out of that together, whether you like it or not. And at the end of the day, I think that's the challenge to be able to put yourself in a, different, in a position to actually go, OK, I'm doing this well,
5: mm-hmm.
3: you're not doing this well, the team's not doing this well, let's look, what can we do to move forward? And the more you can do that to keep improving individually and as a team, that's the challenge and the chemistry that goes along with doubles
4: are there some sticky times where things aren't going right and knowing when to split up when to keep going
3: yeah i think that comes down to a few personal decisions and i mean at some point you sometimes need someone else to come in and for a few weeks and go okay what's actually happening other times you just go okay no i need a fresh start but um at the end of the day i think there's no right or wrong decision you just got to stick with the decisions you make and run with it.
4: Have you ever tried to play, and I'm sure you have, um, with an Australian, given how good Australian doubles is in the past, but none of your real successes have come with an Australian?
3: Yeah, no, I think I've come through a time where um, post-Woodies, we've had a couple of singles guys, Nick and Bernie did great, now Demon's come through. I mean, we've had a few boys knock on the door where Sav had a great couple of years, But no, I feel like we've had a little bit of a lull in terms of the depth of what men's tennis was. I mean, past prior to me coming on tour, I think Paul Hanley, Jordan Kerr was up there, Ashley Fisher, you had Stephen Huss. I mean, you can just start counting the numbers and then you're not even getting on the singles side with... I mean, you look at Wayno, Pat Rafter, Hewitt. I mean, you just start talking numbers and numbers and numbers and I feel like at the moment, Australian men's tennis is just starting to make a push again with the numbers we're getting, which is great to see. And no, I mean definitely not throwing it definitely not ruling it out you got to look at all your options i mean to play with an aussie in, in australia would be amazing um we get to do it in davis cup and it's sensational we love it so and now hp cup so yeah don't rule it out but yeah enjoy the success i have because it's a year-long sport you can't just look at a month a year as your right. as your business so you got to look at the year long how you can actually succeed wherever you go
4: and you're now playing with Filip Polasek. Uh, you started with him last year. Yeah. And it was a bit of a strange situation, wasn't it, with the, w- uh, the ATP Tour Finals, because you and him were on the cusp of qualifying, and he'd also qualified with Dodig. Correct. And then he would have had to make a decision had you both yeah. qualified. That would have been a very awkward situation had it happened, wouldn't it?
3: Yeah, it would have been a really interesting one. But, I mean, if you look at the number of events we played, for us to even get close and have that in the conversation was, for us to look back, we go, you know, we gave it a hell of a nudge, and... Yeah, I mean, it would have been a great position for Philip to be in just to figure out what he wanted to do. But, I mean, if you'd told me that when we started going into US Open that you'd been talking about whether you could make Turin, I would have signed on the dotted line <laughs> anyway.
4: And were you slightly worried? Because when he started playing back with Dodig, they did rather well at the ATP Tour Finals. Was there ever a moment in your mind that you thought, uh-oh, I'm in yeah. trouble here?
3: I mean, whatever it is, whatever <laughs> happens, happens. I mean, I've seen both sides of it. But, no, I mean, we knew it was... What was what was going to happen? If they did great, great. I mean, you can't ever wish bad on anyone and you just wish every success. So I, a pre- I was pretty confident the way things were going to unplanned and I thought they were probably going to even just sneak out a couple more matches. Would have been interesting if they got rolling, but that's doubles. That's a format for tour events is what we play. It takes yeah. a couple of points here and there and, yeah, you've got to try and roll with it.
4: And when you get the eight players uh, best in the world, it's uh, just there's, nip and tuck, yeah, isn't it?
3: There's never much in it and momentum can play a big part of it and just... Sometimes it's a little bit of luck, whether you like it or not. Sometimes just the better team wins, and, but there's never much in it. You're only ever normally winning 51 or 52% of the points, and that's doubles.
4: Tell me a little bit about your junior career and why you chose to go to university in the States.
3: Yeah, no, I grew up playing. I was never one of the best juniors in Australia. I was always normally making about quarters of the nationals. And for me, when I was 17, 18, I was never um, big enough and probably mature enough to handle a full year on tour with what it took or what it took, both not only on the court but off the court because whether you like it or not, it's a, it's a long grind. And mm. if you're not used to it and prepared for it, it's a big difference compared to what you're used to at home. So for me to go down the college pathway was perfect for me. We'll get a lot of matches, grow up. Put on the fresh, freshman, actually, 30 pounds in the first year, which everyone's <laughs> normally freshman 20. I thought but it was
4: only meant to be 15. Yeah, but no, I
3: mean, 15 <laughs> kilos. But no, I put on probably a couple of inches of height as well, yeah. body filled out, gave me time to mature, and then I was ready to make the transition as soon as I was done with four years in college. And for me to look back, it was the best sort of breeding ground for me to know whether I could make it as a tennis player. It was either going to make or break me. And to be able to look back now, it certainly... Gave me the opportunities and probably the mindset ready to take on to a life.
4: Yeah, JP Smith came and talked about uh, how his college experience just totally changed his life, yeah. and it was all about sort of time management and discipline. Yeah. Was it the same for you?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you got to be a full time student and a full time athlete, and mm-hmm. whether you like it or not, if one gives something, you you can't ever let one side of it give. Um, when you go to university, you're a student athlete for a reason and student comes first for a reason. So you can't ever let your studies go because otherwise you don't get to play. It's pretty simple. So at the end of the day, you learn, live away from home, little things like cooking for yourself. I mean, I went my first year, I was in an apartment, started cooking for myself, cleaning, making your bed, washing, just taking care of all the little things you don't even think about. I mean, I, mean, I even went down to the, even figuring out for me as an Australian, I'd didn't really enjoy the snow so luckily enough for me I stayed in down in Tennessee and then went to Baylor in Texas so I enjoyed the sunshine and but that's a part of the different culture you got to get used to it and taking these experiences in and they make you stronger for what they are and you also make great networks coming out of it I know if you look back anyone who went to college you had a great time you always had great strong networks and you always look back to the staying in touch with your college where you're at and also the uh, connections you made at college.
4: Mm, No, That's absolutely true and just thinking about uh, for the last two years under Covid and all the lockdowns I know Australians in particular have had a very very difficult time not being able to go home. I presume uh, that background that you've had and having to sort of cope with yourself I know it was a while ago now but has that helped you in your maturity and just being able to cope with things that go wrong?
3: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, at the end of the day, you got to mentally prepare for a grind of a year. I mean, I got lucky enough uh, to get my wife and two girls out in end of September after U.S. Open, so I got to see them then, which was it was a long slog last year for all the Aussies. I know we, a lot of us got a lot closer um, and stuck together, knowing the difficulties we were going through, which was great for the Aussies. And I know the guys and the girls, you just sort of you supported each other and you moved through together, which is what. The older generation of players actually spoke about it a lot you grow, you come together you come through in waves you practice together you go to dinner together and it just builds camaraderie and just sort of a team ethos about everyone you want everyone to do well and i feel like that's what the aussies did so well last year i mean i still haven't been back to wa since February, uh, since april last year so but yeah i'm lucky enough that i grew up in melbourne so i've got family here and friends here so for me it's a little bit easier but yeah my wife hasn't seen her family since september but um, it's, yeah, we've all been through a tough side. There's so many of us that got so many similar stories. Mm. That's why you just got to come together, and you hope sport and events like this can propel us forward, going future, and at least bring a smile into everyone's faces again.
4: Well, it's certainly doing now. I heard uh, that everyone was sort of visiting Demonor because he had a place in Spain. Did you ever go and stay with him as well? No, I (laughs) was very close a couple of times,
3: but actually I've got a place in London. So for me, it's a little bit closer and my Spanish is pretty woeful. So (laughs) I'd need a translator, not just Demon to translate for me.
4: We're talking of Aussies. You, of course, played in the Tokyo Olympics, which was 2020, but played in 2021. Um, And now with all your experience, was there any pressure when you were lining up alongside Ash Barty in the mixed doubles?
3: No, to be honest with you, it was more about... Uh, we played mixed together when she was back as a teenager. And it was just fun to get back on court with her. I mean, we get on so well anyway. Our families are close. And to be able to share the court with her again is just... It was special. And we look back. We're a little stiff not to get in the gold medal match. But, hey, we got a medal for Australia. It was so much fun. And we look back and we had a great time. And what the Olympics was, I think, not only for Australia, but also for global sport and people around the world it gave us a shining light through a tough time and hopefully we can t- continue putting on events like that that enable the same thing
4: so you played with ash barty as a junior
3: no well when when, we, when she well when she was still a junior when yeah. she was that good i played played a couple of slams with her i remember back when she was on the brink of top 100 singles but was winning with casey in doubles um yeah, and so I've got to know her well for years on end. So to be able to share the court with her years down the track is just fun and entertaining again.
4: Oh, that's so good. And yeah. you had a great camaraderie. Were you a bit surprised when Djokovic and Stojanovic pulled out of that? Oh, boys absolutely. Medal match?
3: Absolutely. I mean, we we expected a hard fought match coming up, but. Um, Nah, take it, a medal's a medal.
4: Absolutely. I think it was, was it Australia's first in the mixed doubles?
3: Yes, correct. First in mixed doubles, yeah, which is pretty fantastic. special.
4: Fantastic. Bronze medal. And where, where are you keeping it? I know that's a ridiculous question. It actually but... has
3: already done quarantine to get back into Perth, <laughs> so it's actually at my place in Perth, so I hope so I can get back at so some point. So the
4: medal's point. there, but you just can I haven't get been it. able to get back there.
3: <laughs> I sent it home so my girls could have some, have some fun with it, which they did.
4: Excellent, uh, so with your new partner Philip Polasek, what's yeah. the the goals obviously I mean you, you want to win a few more slams you've got twenty five titles one is a major and three losing finals, so you've come awfully close yeah um, do you think you can go the distance with Philip
3: yeah, why not I mean we're starting to put a bit of consistency together, which is fantastic. I mean we finished back end of last year really well um, i can't see why if we continue to produce the level of tennis we are why we can't give it a nudge this year and going on forward so fingers crossed we keep improving and keep working well together and yeah let's see what happens john pierce speaking there with candy reed and while we're on the
0: business of doubles it is a special congratulations to rohan bopana and his partner ramkumar ramanathan who claimed the title on home soil in pune this week and you can hear our exclusive chat with rohan from earlier in the week on the podcast channel you're listening to the atp tennis radio podcast, podcast. Finally this time, have you ever wondered how many rackets get strung at a Grand Slam and what it must be like for the men and women whose job that is all day, every day? In Melbourne, Candy Reed managed to steal a bit of time, not a lot, but a bit of time with two of the busiest men on site. Masters of their craft, Steve Harris, and first his colleague and head stringer at Wimbledon, Paul Skip.
5: Speed is important, but consistency and quality is probably something which is far more important. We need to do it in a prompt manner, but we obviously need to do it absolutely correct for what the players want.
4: How long, roughly, does it take you to do a racket?
5: So we're looking around about 15 to 17 minutes. Um, Obviously, if it calls that we need to do one faster, you know, if Rafa's sending one off from court or such like, then, you know, we try and do it a little bit quicker, get it back to the player as soon as we can.
4: Um, what kind of strings are most of these players using? We've got, well, there's several kinds of string now, aren't there? There's natural gut and then there's synthetic gut and a, a polyester as well.
5: Yeah, that's true. Uh, most of the players uh, in some form are using a polyester, um, maybe mixed with a, a natural gut or a synthetic gut or multifilament. No one's using full gut anymore. It's just too powerful for these players and they won't get the spin that they want as well or the control.
4: And there's different gauges of string, isn't there? Which means, well, you tell me. Uh,
5: Yeah, there's different gauges. Uh, Usually, if you have a thinner gauge, it can help bite on the ball a little bit more, maybe a little bit more powerful. Uh, And then, obviously, thicker ones may just help with a little bit more durability or even some players like it because it's maybe just a little bit deader so they can take big swings at the ball. That can help. So, yeah. But, I mean, even Rafa. I mean, Rafa's uses one of the thickest on tours. His is up at uh, 1.35 millimetre thickness. You don't get many players like that, but again, because of his style of play, it helps him and obviously helps with his durability. Whereas you'll have some other players will definitely prefer the thinner gauges.
4: We're here at the Australian Open and it's noticeable that Rafa's got a little bit more power on his serve, quite a bit more actually. And I wondered if it was because he was having his racket strung a little bit lower, although you can't get much lower than Rafa Strings, can you?
5: Uh, Well, Rafa's string actually isn't that low. Um, He's actually pretty consistent over all the tournaments he plays at. He's roughly within half a kilo all the time of wherever he goes. But the lowest tension we've had this week is around about 11, 11 and a half kilos, which, you know, for most players, that is an absolute trampoline. And, you know, say it's going to fly for most people, but the player using it is obviously happy using it conversely we've had someone who's stringing up basically as much as 40 kilos and that just turns out just like a, a frying pan basically
4: so the higher tension is uh, like you said more of a frying pan more like almost like a brick wall to most mortals you couldn't play with it because it would just be so tough so stiff is that right
5: yeah it is absolutely just so solid i mean my arm hurts thinking about trying to hit with that racket but that's what that player likes for some reason they've taken a journey with uh, their choice of strings and tensions and that's where they've ended up but definitely not recommended for most people i mean most players you're probably looking around about the 23 24 kilo mark and for average club players i'd probably recommend something of a similar nature
4: and then of course the lower you go so that you mentioned the trampoline that would create an awful lot of power but not an awful lot of control
5: yeah generally uh, the ruling is lower will give you more power but to be honest it, it turns more into depth as opposed to pure power uh, with the same stroke the ball will go slightly deeper so everyone thinks they're hitting with more power you don't get a massive power increase unless you start dropping you know 5 or 6 kilos in one go then you will notice you will notice a, a ball increase but the ball speed isn't always as big as what you think it's going to be
4: well, thank you very much for your time. And uh, I'll let you get back to stringing. You're almost through this one. You've got the mains done and uh, about three quarters through the crosses. And then uh, I guess you're on to the next one. How many rackets roughly are you doing per day?
5: Um, well, it's got a little bit quieter now, so we're probably down to maybe 15 to 20. Uh, I think my busiest day is probably maybe around about the 35 mark. Um, but it's, it's all been fairly steady at the moment, not too bad. Just it's all the planning, making sure we obviously get all the rackets done. In time for when the player wants it.
4: Brilliant. Thanks so much. Thanks, Candy. And uh, meeting another gentleman, would you mind introducing yourself?
5: Uh, Yeah, my name's Steve Harris.
6: I'm from Sydney, but obviously working here at the Australian Open.
4: And Steve, you have got a, a racket here and it looks like you're doing a hybrid of strings. Are you finding that most players are doing the hybrid now or full beds of poly?
6: Mostly, it's full beds of poly, but it depends on the player's requirements. Obviously, they they set them up to suit their own needs. So you've got some players that will just go with hybrids for whatever reason, but but the vast majority are full polys.
4: What's the benefit of having a hybrid string? So what we mean by hybrid is it's two different kinds of string. Usually, players do the polyester in the mains, which are the strings that go up and down, and then in the crosses they do as kind of a softer string using a, a synthetic gut or a, a multi filament. Is that correct?
6: Yeah, that's a pretty standard. Most of the time at the top level, that hybridisation is with uh, a natural gut, uh, again, because of its liveliness in creating power, its better feel and lower vibration and shock. Some players, if I use examples, some players like Federer, for example, who, pres- who hits a precise ball to certain targets on the court, he wants that feel and, uh, of softness, of comfort, of getting consistent performance. Whereas Rafa is more of a muscle man on the court with a full poly, he wants to rip the cover off it with spin. If you swap those two guys over with their rackets and their strings, they couldn't play properly with them because they're anti the style that they develop in their shots.
4: There's a lot of work, isn't there, done in the off season where players, obviously, they try different kind of rackets. They they change the balance and uh, there's a lot of work done with the string and finding out what works best for them. So how much of that do you know about and the dynamic tension and, and all those little intricacies of stringing? Well that's probably the area of
6: tennis that I'm into most often, having a retail operation but being into the specifics of the science and technology of the sport, I'm very keenly interested in that and watching the Andy Murray change at the moment has been very interesting. So Andy's gone to a larger head size, an expanded string pattern, to a wider beam uh, there's Because of the string pattern changes, there's been increases in power level, but then he's also got better shape out of those. He's upping his tensions now as he comes to grips with the extra power. Obviously, he's still throwing at the ball in the same area of the court, but he's just trying to hit it there better. His sweet spot's bigger, which means he gets more good quality contacts. His mobility is not as good, so he's trying to get the racket to make up for the, some of that shortfall. If we look at another player like uh, Rafa Nadal, over the last couple of years, he's gone from a co-poly full string bed to in 1.35 millimeter which was his standard from a young kid now he's down to 1.3 millimeter again he's getting older the physical wear and tear on his body means that it's not as easy for him to recover from these. so he's looking for an edge in the string to produce either more spin or a little bit more zip just to give him a you know one or two percent increase and th- that's what these guys are searching for all the time and he's coming looking for a big increase because the physical decline has been significant but he's in a lot better position now than I thought he would be.
4: Pete Sampras I always remember him saying later on in his career that he'd wished he'd changed to a bigger head size racket and so I suppose it the modern player they're always looking for that edge like you say are they pretty willing to to make changes given that many of them I and mean, you talked about Andy Murray has been very successful
6: I think they're more likely to now and the current generation of players the younger players now in their 20s have probably gone through this from a fairly young age you gotta remember if you're a player of about 40 years of age your tennis was probably produced mainly through the early graphite era maybe even back a bit further than that there wasn't as many options available they were all fairly static once a company like Babalat came along with a 300-gram wide-body open string pattern spin-friendly frame, all of a sudden it was like these younger kids were using that from very young ages. So they're highly susceptible to trying new sorts of things. The older guys, they tend to stick with, oh, if Sampras used it, it's good enough for me. Um, so they're 340 grams and whatever else. Uh, so that makes it physically tiring. When you're 20, 28 year age and you're fully fit and training you can play with almost anything but we don't stay 28 years of age for the rest of our lives
4: um, how does the weather affect the string
6: uh, weather has a significant impact at the higher levels of the sport so um at lower levels you know you complain that the court's too wet or it's too dry or it's too windy or whatever but for a uh, top-level player, that makes a, a pretty much a computer brain mentality where they're trying to adjust string tensions and not so much rackets when you get to a major tournament, but certainly string tensions to get the setup right so you can still maintain the consistency of control. They're trying to get the same thing every time, but the weather throws all sorts of variations that they try to deal with and again for a a men's match again over five hours over five sets uh, those variables change in the course of the match so they have to be adjusted for
4: is it something when you come in here we're at the Australian Open of course at Melbourne Park when you come in for the day you sort of looking at the weather is it just instinctive to you to see about the humidity and know what you're sort of expecting for the day
6: it's probably one of the things that I look for all the time, every every day when I come to a site. I want to know what the weather, the temperature is going to be like, where the wind's coming from, and I'm not even playing, right? Uh, so because quite often at other tournaments, not so much here because we don't have direct contact with the players as much, but other tournaments I do as a lead in, I have I talk to, exactly to the player. So often they'll ask, "How's the weather been? What's its forecast? You know, are you El Nino or La Nina?" Yeah, you know, and so we'll we'll talk about these things so that they get a bit of a heads up, especially when they come from the northern hemisphere. They're coming from a winter season. Into an Australian summer season, it's it's sort of like they've got to recalibrate themselves.
4: Just speaking to a few other coaches and some of the players, seem very interested in the strings and the dynamic tension and others don't seem to be at all Uh, I know Belinda Bencic is one of those who's quite interested in the dynamic tension so do you get uh, well you I suppose you know who's coming over and and what they want to do and you also know the players that aren't that bothered about it
6: yeah if you don't know directly like I did Belinda in Sydney this year and I hadn't done her before but uh, you know they're there uh, several days maybe even a couple of weeks before the tournament start getting acclimatized and going through their returns so she'd come in we'd have a chat she'd want to uh, put an ERT device on the strings. get a, a DT reading and she'd explain to me what she's looking for. So I will string accordingly to that particular measure. There might be some small adjustments. Generally, we're all pretty accurate, but there, there might be a slight adjustment. But then once I know what she's after, I can match that up as we go. Others, like you say, uh, you know, they're just a straight number. doesn't matter rain, hail or shine. It doesn't matter to them. Uh, Rafa is one of those uh, because his game is mostly built around creating spin, not so much trying to get the ball right to the, the baseline.
4: Is it true that you lose about 2 pounds of tension uh, through the knots or is that not is that a fallacy?
6: It's not that accurate. Uh, you can you can do lose some because of the regression of the string back into the into the hole, but multifilaments and co-polys react differently, different gauges react differently, so give different numbers. What we do is we string it in such a way that on the machines today they allow for a 10% 20% extra pull. So we we try and take that loss out of the equation by adjusting it. And, and the way we do our knots and the way we position them and shorter gaps between where the string ends and the knot begins, those sort of things are trying to minimise that variation. Remembering that most of these players, though, they'll only use that racket for the day and then that racket will be strung again. So it's pretty much, a you know, it might even just be on the court being used for about two or three hours. But at the same time, we want them to have the same thing every time. I
4: was going to ask you how often uh, players get their racket strung.
6: Yeah, the top guys, because money is not a problem, they're going to get rackets done, a bunch of rackets done every day, at a Grand Slam in particular. And for the lower-ranked players, at this tournament, they get five free restrings, so they're going to use the five as much as they can. In qualifying, they do uh, three free restrings for the players here. And, and I'm always talking to some of these younger players earlier on, and I say to them, you know, once you've got to the last round of qualifying, this is the time that you want to use the lot because this is payday. If you make the first round, that's a hundred grand. Don't skimp on the thirty dollars. You know, make an investment in yourself. And you've been stringing rackets for how long? Uh, I started my own company when I was nineteen, and uh, so that's forty-five odd years. Um, and uh, been this is my fifteenth Australian Open, and I've done over thirty-five ITF ATP and, and WTA events.
4: Um. And you clearly love it.
6: Yeah, this is what I like to do. This is my, I have a shop which is based on stringing and, and customer service, and, and I do that for the general public. But this is the payoff. Is it's, like, it's like a mechanic that all of a sudden joins a Formula 1 racing team. Uh, this is where it's really happening.
4: And I presume uh, because you've been around so long and have such good experience that the players probably ask specifically for you to string their rackets?
6: Yeah, not all the time because you've got to remember there's a very high quality of standard of stringer here. So pretty much players are happy with whoever they get and they're going to get that person for the t- same tournament. So there's a general rule with most players, same machine, same stringer. Uh, and we carry that as long as we can carry it. Uh, but you do get people that I work, might have worked for in Sydney that will sit there and say to me, look, I'd like to get you again next week or following week or whatever, And or they'll see you and i go, can you do mine? I get a few phone calls uh, in December saying, are you doing the Australian Open again? Can you do my racket? And so, yeah, I like to do those same players. So I have a core cool group of players that I do over and over and over again. That helps them relax and concentrate on their tennis, and, and I enjoy following them.
4: Yeah, I was going to say, we've got a, a stringing machine here and then obviously your workstation and you've got your uh, laptop there as well. You're able to watch the players, so you're probably quite heavily invested in, in those you're stringing rackets for.
6: Yeah, I'm uh, set up a little bit differently from the others because I've got a few on-court players who do it. So I've got my main machine I'm working on. I've got a backup machine, sit there already prepared, ready to go. So all I do is pick up my tool tray and move it from one to the other. I've had them both going at the same time. Uh, I'm going to learn to teach one of my feet to string and I'll be right. <laughs> Um, uh, Obviously, my rack there with Berrettini's rackets are on there, but monitors around normally show us all the matches. Uh, There's replays of the main courts, and then I follow my players on the court individually. It's the great thing about the coverage of tennis nowadays is that I can basically view any court I want at any time.
4: And you said on the matches, so that means that a player is requiring a racket while they're playing a match. Does that happen quite often yeah
5: pretty
6: often and, and you get to know the customers that you have that will require that and you get to understand why they're requiring that which is more important so as the heat has gone up each day in Melbourne I've got a few players who are very sensitive to that and they need to improve their control probability so I watch their matches because I want to see when they're handing a racket in the, the umpire gets the, the message initially and rings the front desk but quite often I'm already aware of that racket and I've already gone and, and advised I'm getting nine court so I need to have a free space or I need to set up another, another machine and so that happens in a matter of seconds and then the racket will come to me much better to be well prepared than all of a sudden it turns up and I never knew it was coming.
4: Steve, thank you so much. You've been really insightful and uh, I'll let you get on with your job. Thank you very much. Steve
0: Harris and Paul Skip, our thanks to them and of course to John Piers and Emil Roussevori before that. Next week, I'll be heading to Rio at the ATP 500 on clay there. We'll have a great lineup on the podcast. I'm hoping we'll get Guga Curtin, the godfather of Brazilian tennis, We'll certainly have Matteo Berrettini, the top seed, Italian with a Brazilian grandmother. He can't wait to make his Rio debut. I hope you can join us for that. In the meantime, check out the podcast feed on Wednesday for an exclusive chat with Fred Fontaine, coach of the ATP Cup winning captain, Félix Auger-Aliassime. I'm Seb Lozier. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis.